Notable declines in the unemployment rate in December and January, together with improvement in indicators of job openings and firms hiring plans, do provide some grounds for optimism on the employment front. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Friday, February 11th, and that was Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke you heard at the top. Today on the program, we have the author of the book The Big Short, Michael Lewis, drops by for a chat. We discuss, among many things, how a financial crisis is a Rorschach test of a nation's character. We're going to have that interview in a minute, but first, the Planet Money Indicator. Alex, today's Planet Money Indicator is 18. After 18 days of protests, Hosni Mubarak has stepped down. This happened just a few minutes ago, so it's sort of very exciting. Obviously, most of our listeners will already know this by the time they hear the podcast, but I couldn't resist using it for today's indicator for a couple reasons, really. A reason one, obviously, huge, dramatic, world historical event, who can resist? But uh, more parochially, reason two, Mubarak is handing power over to the military. And Alex, that podcast that you and Caitlin did last week is really, really illuminating and in that particular context. Yeah. And when you watch these protests, it's very interesting because you've got this huge crowd of people. You know, it's, it's a very much a grassroots protest. There's like people pouring onto the streets from all different walks of life. But the military is sort of in between it. And, and it's unusual. Usually you have a military coup or you have a popular uprising, but this is sort of a mixture. And part of the reason, I think, has to do with this podcast that Caitlin and I did last week about the role of the Egyptian military in the Egyptian economy. By some estimates, the Egyptian military controls upwards of 40% of the Egyptian economy. And you were saying on the podcast, I mean, it's not just that, you know, they're buying tanks and stuff. They're also like in the bottled water business and they own all these resorts and they sell household appliances. So like regular people, maybe they don't even know it, but they're buying stuff that the Egyptian military sells. Exactly. And because so many of the Egyptian people are the Egyptian military's customers, yeah. <laughs> that gives the Egyptian military, a, you know, a, an added interest in the stability of the country. And it sort of helps explain the behavior of the military, which has been for the most part, relatively non-provocative during this crisis. We'll throw up a link to that podcast on the blog, npr.org slash money. But let's move on to the topic of the day, Michael Lewis. Which is very exciting. The Planet Money team were like a bunch of Michael Lewis groupies, sort of embarrassing. This is one of the more exciting podcasts in our occasional series, which we call Deep Reads, where we talk to authors or thinkers that we admire, and we just bring them in and have a wide-ranging discussion on a bunch of stuff. So Michael Lewis, of course, he wrote The Blind Side, which got made into a movie. He wrote Moneyball, which is about baseball and which I loved, even though I basically don't care about baseball. But for purposes of Planet Money, he's most importantly the author of these two sort of iconic works of financial journalism. Uh, His first book, the book that made him famous, was called Liar's Poker. It came out in the late 80s, and it was about his years working as a trader at a Wall Street firm called Solomon Brothers. And then, of course, there's his most recent book, The Big Short, which profiles five separate and very different people who have nothing in common but one thing. They all saw the housing meltdown coming, and they got very rich, betting that it would, in fact, happen. So, Alex, you know, one thing that's really interesting when you put Liar's Poker and The Big Short together, it, it's really striking that they seem to be sort of bookends telling different parts of this same long story. Michael Lewis, he just happened to be working on Wall Street at the time and at the place where the mortgage-backed security was invented. And the mortgage-backed security, of course, it was the financial innovation that more than 20 years later wound up at the center of the financial crisis and at the heart of The Big Short. So we started our interview talking about his two financial books, 20 years apart and what they had to do with each other. 
So I actually went back and reread Liar's Poker. Something I've is, never done. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> never done it. Well, it's, it's actually, I recommend, it's a great book. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth reading. It's a good read. It's okay. definitely worth all reading. All right. Well, Mel, pick it um, up sometime. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, well, first of all, there's all these people who appear in it, and you're writing about them at the time, who who later make recurring, you know, appearances throughout this crisis and throughout the in, the intervening decades and show up again in, during the crisis, right? Like John Merriweather is like one of the first, you know, he's in your first scene and then he comes back later in long-term capital management and then he had some hedge fund during the housing crisis. But but it it concerns itself a lot with the, the creation of the mortgage-backed security and Louis Ranieri, and, and this was his idea, you know, the, the idea of like creating a mortgage-backed security, right? Right. And, yeah. And, and so it's tempting to sort of look at this as like, Going back in hindsight and reading this book that came out in the late '80s, and then the, the, your latest book, the, the Big Short, as like part of the same story, you know, different chapters in, in sort of an ongoing story. Do you think is that a way to think about it? That is how I think about it. Yeah, that's why I came back to it. I, I never thought I was going to write about Wall Street again. Uh, I never thought I'd have the access. I thought I'd burned all my bridges with liars poker, uh, and I never thought it'd be that interesting. It's not a natural subject for a narrative. I'm amazed that another narrative presented itself to me. I really, really honestly thought I was done with it because the opportunity wouldn't be there any, ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason the opportunity was there again was for me was it just so happened that really, really important people in this crisis were total outsiders, that they weren't really part of the system. They were oddballs and weirdos. And so through them, I could get to a narrative again. And, and one of the best scenes I feel like is that scene with Eisman when he's in his, his, his group after they're, they're all sitting on the steps outside St. Patrick's Church, I think. When with Lehman re- Brothers fails. When Lehman Brothers fails and they're just sort of like they're watching and it's just like business as usual, but they know. They, they feel like they're watching dead people. Yeah. You know, they're seeing ghosts. The it's people amazing. Who, yeah, it's it, an amazing it, scene. The other thing that was so I thought was so cool was that basically all the characters converge on Las Vegas just before the whole thing goes falling up falls apart, and they each th- it is at this conference for subprime mortgage bond people, all of the, the the boosters of the of the market, and they converge on this place, Las Vegas. It's great in a casino, <laughs> and they they're spies masquerading as people who like this market, and each of them think they are alone in their insight, and they're want and that to me that was a movie scene. These people wandering around not knowing the others are there uh, as spies in the, in, 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 of, in this, inside this mass delusion or mass fraud. I thought that was incredible. And so what is the, what is the long arc? That's what, about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now you were on Wall Street. Well, I got the job in 85, so we're coming up on 30. How, I mean, how do you get from there to, to the big short, from there to the financial crisis of the last few years? Um, well, uh, those are all these necessary conditions I think are laid down back then. I, you know, it's funny. I can, I'm now far removed from it, but I can remember when I, the giddiness of sitting on a trading desk. And one of my jobs was, it was effectively to manipulate abstractions, to, to dream up new securities uh, if I saw the opportunity in the market. And once you get in the habit, you just forget what it is you're, you're, you know, the real stuff underneath it. Uh, it's just a game. It becomes this, this wonderful, exciting game. I see this person wants to take this risk. I see this person uh, is afraid of this risk. If I can, if I can find some way to, to, to broker between them, 
I can make a lot of money, uh, uh, kind of thing. And um, well, and that I mean, in the way you described it, that that could be a good thing. That's what Wall Street's supposed to do. Right? Yes. if you are actually allowing the person who who wants to hedge a risk to hedge it, and allowing someone who wants to take a risk to take it, that's good, right? Yes. Yeah. It could can be good. Uh, the um, I'm pausing because you can distinguish financial activity that is sort of tied to productive enterprise. Like, I think the core function of Wall Street is not moving risk around. I mean, it really is, it's supposed to be moving capital around to productive uses. So you have some people who have extra money. You have right. some people who need extra money. Right. And, Wall and, when you, supposed and to so if you them. just think, if you think, if you start thinking of Wall Street in terms of it's supposed to just broker risk, well, then what you end up with is this giant casino-like activity on the side of Wall Street that has nothing to do with productive enterprise. So not only is it not really socially useful, in the extreme, it's very, it can be very, very destabilizing. And that was true for you? I mean, were you like the productive clarifier or the sort of casino-running obfuscator? Um, I was there only a couple of years, two and a half years. And my memory is very bad. <laughs> I, I should add that your lawyer I, is whispering um, in your ear right now. I don't recall the details. Uh, but but um, I remember being enthusiastic about a lot of this innovation. I, and I remember being particularly excited by the fact that I had a very fast money hedge fund customer who was risk loving. And they would say, for example, I don't think the German bond market is going down ever. And if you want to, if you want to place that risk that it's going to go down on me, go ahead and do it. And I would create, I created a, a warrant and an option uh, that people could buy a put option on German government bonds. It was in the form of a security and sold it off to all these people. So you created basically a bet. Yes. That somebody could take yes. and place with it was this a pure German bet. Hedge fund. It was right. a pure bet. We, we did. I, I remember we did you were the bookie for the hedge. It was a bookie. Yeah. Create invented the the, the thing, uh, the security. Had the sales force go sell it. Uh, we took out a couple of percent. A lot made a lot of money. Um, alienated the German government. The German government actually got a little upset that we were creating this these bets on German government bonds. Uh, they wouldn't let us use the. It was pretty – I can remember them saying they, that we couldn't use the logo, the insignia of the Federal Republic of Germany because it would, it would blacken the name of the Federal Republic. I thought – this is 1985. The Holocaust is not a distant memory. And I thought, what can we do to your reputation you haven't done yourself? Yeah, yeah. And, that's uh, how much governments hate speculation yeah, yes, on that's their right, sovereignty. That's right. Well, the Germans especially, they're right to think this way about it. I, you know, and was it socially useful? Not really. It, it, yes, I guess so. I, I wasn't uh, – in this case, I wasn't lying about the nature of the risk, but I was manufacturing risk uh, or bets um, for the sake of taking out uh, you know, a, a cut of the transaction. So, yeah. I, and I didn't think of – it's funny. I didn't think of it one way or the other. I thought it was, of it as fun and innovative. Um, and I think that's probably how a lot of people on Wall Street think about it when they go about their business. I mean, so if we have the arc so far goes from 89, Liar's Poker, sort of the invention of modern Wall Street to the last few years and the, and the crisis and the big short. And, and you've been writing now more recently in, in Vanity Fair about the sovereign debt crises in Europe. And, and is it right that that's the subject of your next book? Yes. It's, uh, it is uh, just kind of inadvertently. Um, here's what happened. While I was working on the big short, 
I did a kind of casting search for the main characters. And I went and interviewed most of the people who had made a lot of money betting against the subprime mortgage uh, bond market. There weren't that many of them. Um, And one of them was a fellow down in Dallas named Kyle Bass, who was a wonderful character. And by the time I got to him, which was early 2008, uh, he had moved on from subprime mortgages. He was already cashing in his chips there. And he was very interested in what was going on with with sovereign debt, country's debt. And he laid out this story for me that involved, among other things, collapse of Iceland, collapse of Ireland, collapse of Greece. <laughs> and, you know, he was he was telling you the future. Well, yes, he was. Well, it was the present. He was looking at the data, and it was and looking at their at swelling debt. And then what happens is that. These banks in these various countries all got themselves in enormous trouble. And the countries, with the exception of Iceland, basically took on the obligations of the banks, exacerbating the country's problems. Ireland in particular. Well, Ireland's an extreme case. But the, his, his perception, his insight is that all this banking debt is going to one way or another end up being sovereign debt. The, the, the countries aren't going to walk away from their banks. Not in France, not in Germany, and these banks are in horrible shape. European banks are in. They make our banks look responsible right now. And you know, the scenario he's dreaming up is Armageddon because right now we have this. We've watched the bailout. The banks got themselves in trouble. The state's there to bail them out, but there's no one there to bail out the state. There's no one, nothing behind that. So then you're talking about you know social, not unrest, revolution. You're talking about you know, have canned goods in a cave, as he does, and, uh, and, and guns and gold. And uh, he was pulling platinum bars out of his desk and you know, that kind of thing. And he, so he was really in a kind of apocalyptic state of mind. So I, I had this in the back of my head. You know, you, every time you finish a book, you've got all the crap on your floor that you didn't write about. And this was, and I didn't write about Kyle. You know, he ended up on the cutting room floor and the whole sovereign thing just went off to one side. But so anyway, uh, uh, Vanity Fair, they are, they've been very indulgent. And I have this editor there, who Doug Stumpf, who is very interested in the subject. And he shipped me off to Iceland in the beginning of 2009. And I just caught the bug. And the thing that interested me was, all right, so we have this global financial crisis. The cause in the various countries is all basically the same thing. It's, it's incontinent credit. It's money washing in at terms that shouldn't be offered and being to people who should never be lent money in the first place and countries that should never be lent money. And, um, but in each place, the symptoms are completely different if you look closely. So I thought here we have an opportunity for, to create a genre, financial disaster travel journalism. <laughs> and, and we are going to learn about the places through the prism of their financial affairs. We're going to learn about what they're all subjected to a temptation. Pile of money in a dark room. Do what you want with it. What do people want to do? And they want to do different things in different places. Um, so they are. So those those are social portraits. There it isn't. They are. You know, they're masquerading as financial pieces, but they're social portraits. And so they've been three: Iceland, Greece, and Ireland. Now, and the next one I'm about to start uh, on is uh, California. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, what is? I mean, what is the? The very brief thumbnail, the like one sentence thumbnail on what each of the places you've been so far wanted to do. All right. 
The one sentence thumbnail to distinguish Greece from the others is, in the other places, the bank sunk, sunk the country. In Greece, the country sank the banks. The banks were totally responsible. All they did that was wrong was buy Greek government bonds. The money came into Greece, and the Greek people wanted to bloat their state. It's just treated like a giant pinata stuffed with goodies, and everybody gets a whack at it. That, um, and so, and then lie to the European Union about what they've been doing. Um, so that's it. Was all done at the level of the state in Greece, in Ireland and Iceland, both extreme cases of the financiers took control of the money that came in, but in very different ways. In Iceland, uh, the 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 money rolled in. And the society basically granted uh, uh, a handful of of egomaniacal alpha males uh, the opportunity to become Vikings again, <laughs> to go to get in their ships and go plunder in Europe and and buy all kinds of things, you know, Danish airlines and British department stores and huge, I mean, unbelievable uh, media throughout Scandinavia behaving boorishly upsetting everyone. And up to that moment, I think people kind of thought of Icelandic people as sort of nice, quiet people, sort of like Scandinavians. Uh, it became clear they weren't. They were Scandinavians with an edge, with an attitude. Uh, they're different. Um, so they wanted to plunder outside. The Irish, money rolls in, rolls through the banks rather than through the government. And it's used to indulge a kind of Irish fetish about property, their own land. Uh, you know, there were historical restrictions about Irish people owning land. Um, their Irish home ownership rates are at or near the top in the world. And they went berserk competing with each other to buy Ireland. And they drove the price of Ireland through the roof to the point where at the peak, a uh, 4,000 square foot fixer upper on a very nice road uh, went for, I think, $89 million. Uh, and it needed it need, and it needed it needed work. I, I'm sure they could get the loan to fix it up, right? Yeah, After yeah. They the money yeah, about yeah, it. yeah. And what about California? Do you have the the thesis I can't talk for about California? That. Can't yet? talk about that. What about as a citizen of of California? Um, I mean, you live there. You're a smart yeah, guy. You know about finance. I don't pay that much attention. Um, uh, it seems totally unmanageable. Um, it has traces of Greece about it, and has traces of Ireland about it, and has traces of Iceland about it. Uh, I mean, so it's interesting to me because y- you said a few minutes ago that your your book on sovereign debt crisis is actually a book of of social portraits. But I feel like your your books about finance, both both Liars Poker and The Big Short, are really also s- social portraits. Yes. Right? I mean, you get a sense of the culture. Whether it's in, in Liars Poker, it's it's the guys in the eighties getting getting you know chili cheeseburgers at nine in the morning, and uh, or or whether it's these sorts of things. Uh, it, and more recently, and the culture of the insiders and the culture of the outsiders. I mean, I feel like all the books are really more social portraits. I agree. I agree, because I think at bottom, I'm not all that interested in money. I mean, it really <laughs> is true. I, if I were interested, I, you know, uh, it's peculiar that uh, I've written financial books on work on Wall Street, because I don't, I don't like sit there thinking about what to do with money. I'm not that interested in people just because they make a lot of money. So I'm interested in something else. And I guess that other, that other thing is character in action, uh, and the kind of the general drift of uh, of of, um, of societies, and you could, and it's just an, money is because people care so much about it. Uh, it is this great prism through which to view people.
as always, we here at Planet Money would love to hear your thoughts, comments, questions. Please send us email at planetmoney at npr.org. And as always, we would be delighted if you would visit the blog. That's at npr.org slash money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Pictures in his clothes and my bagging through everything.